Happy Friday, everyone. This is a special episode of the Ask Pastor John podcast, and it comes to you in partnership with the Gospel Coalition. Today, our guest, Dr. Don Carson, joins us. He is uh, the co-founder and president of the Gospel Coalition. He is also the editor of the new NIV Zondervan Study Bible, which focuses on biblical theology themes as they develop in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And nobody does this any better than Carson. So we're launching a little occasional series of longer episodes where I'll call Dr. Carson, and he will riff on a, a certain theme in biblical theology. In the future, we'll cover topics like the doctrine of creation, or the doctrine of kingship, or atonement, or kingdom, and so on and so on. Episodes will release on Fridays every three weeks or so on the podcast, and uh, it should be wonderful. Let's let's well, let's see if he's home first. Don Carson. Dr. Carson, Tony Ranke at Desiring God, yes. hello, and thank you for joining us to record a little series of episodes on various prominent themes in the Bible. Today we jump in and start with a historical overview of the Bible, the whole Bible. Tell us the story of the Bible in one shot. Are you, are you ready? Yes. Of course you are. All right, take it away. Okay, here we go. To talk about the overview of the Bible is to conjure up two rather distinct things. Um... On the one hand, there's the Bible as we have it, with Old Testament and New Testament, and its division into various categories. Um, And those categories are themselves sometimes a bit different in English than in uh, the study of the Hebrew Old Testament, for example. We speak of the major and minor prophets, uh, but those are not the categories in which Um, the students of the Hebrew Bible think. Uh, But nevertheless, we can break things down uh, usefully into the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and historical books, and uh, wisdom literature, books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth, and um, prophets, major and minor, even though those are not standard categories. And in the New Testament, one can think of Gospels, the Book of Acts, all the letters, the apocalypse, and even the letters can be broken down into letters to churches versus letters to individuals like First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Uh, all of these are, are useful categories. What they don't get across is the sequence in which things are written, and they don't get across the chronology of the Bible storyline. And that's what we're interested in in this brief podcast. That is to say, what's the Bible storyline that links these various books with their different literary forms and different structures and and different languages and so on together? The next thing to observe is that you can lay out that storyline in very brief sentences, or you could tease it out to make it a many-houred presentation. Um, In briefest form, you have creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That is the beginning and the end. And in between the two, you have uh, the fall, the problem that is addressed, and then redemption, the solution that God provides. So that's that's laying out the Bible storyline in very, very brief compass. Then one can fill it out just a wee bit so that one could summarize it in two minutes or three minutes. 
or one could lay out the details in many, many hours of discussion with charts and and um, uh, uh, tie-ins to all the biblical books so that you see exactly where they fit in in the storyline and so on. Moreover, some books are reflective of a particular incident or a particular time or a particular kingly reign, a particular period. Um, one thinks of the book of Esther, for example. It's tied to the time of one queen and uh, one emperor and only part of their lives. Whereas books like 1 and 2 Samuel and then 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Chronicles and so on, they they, they cover multi-reigns, which means they've been brought together at the end of that period of reigns, but it covers literally hundreds of years. Uh, when you go from 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Kings, you're covering the period from before uh, King Saul. So you're, you're, you're back in the 11th century B.C., um, all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, 587. It's almost half a millennium. And, um, and, and, and that means that documents have been put together and so forth. Um, but, but the storyline is built out of the bits and pieces that you find there. And, and then part of trying to understand the storyline is the fact that the last bit of narrative material in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah, um, still presents what's taking place about 400 years before Christ comes. So to fill in the whole historical storyline brings you into uh, filling out bits and pieces of what is often called the intertestamental period. That is the period between the Testaments, hence intertestamental period, or it's sometimes called the period of Second Temple Judaism. That is the period during which the second temple, not the temple built by Solomon, but the rebuilt temple after the return from the exile, um, after uh, during the period that it uh, was standing, uh, all the way until the time was destroyed in about A.D. 70, which then overlaps, of course, with the onset of the Christian era. So uh, one, one could flush things out uh, along those lines, what I propose to do for the next few minutes is to uh, take an in-between step, to fill out the Bible storyline and indicate some of the ways the biblical books get locked in, uh, because the more of that storyline you know, that you, you've memorized, that you've, you've, you've understood, then the easier it is to tie in particular books to that storyline and see where they fit. So we begin with creation. God makes everything good. We'll have a separate session on just creation and how it functions in Scripture. And then comes the fall, rebellion against the Creator, and with it, death and decay and destruction. Eventually, that leads to judgment. The sin is so severe and God is so righteously angry that he sends the flood. That's Genesis 6 to 9, roughly. Uh, but God, in his mercy, allows Noah and his family to escape, eight people. And um, then, uh, sadly, evil is still no better. It breaks out again and results in the 
Tower of Babel as a sign of rebellion against God. That's Genesis 11. So Genesis 1 to 11 are sometimes referred to the prehistoric chapters, which is not meant that they take place before history, but before history writing. Um, uh, we, we have a kind of demonstration of, of materials being recorded from Abraham on, about, about 2000 B.C., and um, uh, it, it's quite possible that some documents came down from, from earlier times, but, uh, but uh, we don't have access to them. So, from Genesis 12 to 50, that is the rest of the book of Genesis, you have what's sometimes called the patriarchal cycles. You have Abraham, um, and then Isaac, then Jacob, then his sons, especially Joseph. And what you have then is the rise of the Jewish people as a race. There's still no uh, experience of, of nationhood at this point. There's still a large extended family. And uh, here there's a huge emphasis on the promises of God, the covenant of God with Abraham. Uh, one can argue that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden, um, but uh, we'll come to that uh, briefly when we consider creation more closely. Um, so here you have the Abrahamic covenant, which is picked up in the New Testament. We'll return to that. Um, and by the time you come to the end of the book of Genesis, then the people of God, the Israelites, are about 70 strong, plus some further uh, children as they're born in Egypt, down in Egypt with one of the brothers, Joseph, being, uh, let's call him a prime minister. Um, and that sets the stage for what takes place um, hundreds of years later with uh, an emperor who rises, uh, an, an Egyptian pharaoh who rises, uh, who has no personal knowledge or even particular recollection of Joseph. Too much time has passed. Um, the Israelites have multiplied. They're viewed as a threat. And so gradually um, imposed servitude is demanded. And um, eventually that leads to outright slavery. And, and that sets the stage for the second book of the Pentateuch. That is the book of the Exodus. And here, the first half of the book is really the account of the birth of Moses and then his becoming a, a young, trained man in the courts of Pharaoh, brought up by Pharaoh's daughter, but still racially feeling loyal to fellow Israelites and loyal to God. He behaves foolishly as a young man and finds himself fleeing for his life into the backside of the Midianite uh, desert, where he's a shepherd uh, until about the age of 80. And then God calls him, and through what we call the Ten Plagues and God's repeated self-disclosure to the people in, in, in miracles and in word and so on, eventually God leads the people uh, of Israel out across the Red Sea uh, under the leadership of Moses. That leads people down then to Sinai and the giving of the law, and the high point of that is the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus chapter 20. And immediately after Exodus chapter 20, uh, you have the stipulations that come with uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, some parts of, of holiness and the building of the temple, some uh, of the tabernacle rather, the, the stipulations and so on for the priesthood, and uh, all kinds of interesting little tidbits, what an ephod is that the priest uses and so forth. Uh, and that goes on 
until you have the account of Moses coming down from the mountain where he is met with God, Exodus 32, 33, 34, um, and finds the people already uh, in, in an act of craven idolatry, acting as if a calf that they make of pieces of gold represent uh, Yahweh and uh, debauched forms of religion, judgment falls and so forth. And that brings you ultimately to the sad reality that the people of that generation don't get into the promised land, the land of Canaan, because when they approach that land at Kadesh Barnea, then um, most of the spies who go and seek out the land come back just afraid to go any further, even though they've seen God do such wonderful things for them in in uh, the, the the preceding release and so that generation from 20 and up uh, dies off through 40 years of wilderness wandering um and 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 Moses himself doesn't get into the promised land because of some acts of of bad temper and want of faith so he dies at the end of of uh, of the pentateuch himself he doesn't get into the the, the promised land then exodus is followed by Leviticus with uh, a lot of laws, many of them ceremonial, uh, some of them highly memorable moral laws like um, like you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but now you're introduced to the heart of the priestly, sacrificial, ritual system with lots of emphasis on the Day of Atonement, especially in Leviticus um, 16, and Passover laws and holiness code and, and, and so forth. Uh, numbers uh, lays out uh, the numbering of the people and what will be distribution of land once they get into the promised land. Deuteronomy is a kind of review. Moses calling everybody back to faithfulness as they get ready to enter the promised land after all kinds of little historical vignettes of what has taken place uh, in the 40-year gap and uh, then Moses himself dies in the last book of Deuteronomy and is buried by God himself at a place that nobody knows about on Mount Nebo. So that's the Pentateuch. And in one sense, you see, it ends with a discouragement. Um, uh, God uh, promises blessings and cursings. Uh, the blessings upon those who obey, uh, curses upon those who disobey, and guess which way it's going to go. Uh, it's indicated even by the fact that Moses himself, called the meekest man who ever lived, doesn't get into the promised land. And 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 so the promises of grace that are scattered through the book have to be taken seriously to, to speak as many do of a kind of Deuteronomic theology as if it's all merit, blessing and curses. Uh, depending on how you do, is too reductionistic because because those blessings and curses issue in constant picture where, in fact, the curses come to the fore and people fail again and again and again, driving you to grace. Then Joshua and Judges. Joshua brings the people into the promised land, but Judges shows that in the following years, there are cycles of depravity that bring the people down again and again and again. Uh, when the people get desperate enough, crushed by uh, local peoples, then God raises up a judge, um, and 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 the people are spared again. And a couple of generations later, uh, they've slunk into the same sort of idolatry and and immorality. Um, un until the book ends, again, with bleakest despair. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And, and, um, and, and so you begin to say, what we really need is a king, a king who is just and right and, and true. 
And, and so um, during that period of the Judges, you also get this, the story of, of Ruth, for example, and um, other little snippets. Then what you have in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then reviewed again in 1 and 2 Chronicles, is uh, the movement from the period of the Judges, the, the last great one being Samuel, to the onset of kingship. And the first king of what's called the United Monarchy, all the tribes together, is King Saul. And he starts off well, but the people want him for the wrong reasons. They want to be like the pagans around. And 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 Saul himself is, uh, despite his height and his uh, gallantry and his uh, initial meekness, he's insecure and lashes out and is angry at anybody that threatens his position. Eventually he becomes uh, uh, barbaric in his cruelty and his insecurity and his rebellion against God. Um, so he wants to take on both priestly and kingly functions. And the result is he is killed and so is his son. There's never a Saul dynasty. And God appoints as king um, a man after his own heart, we're called, uh, which is the beginning of the Davidic dynasty. That is highlighted in Second Kings chapter 7. In fact, 2 Kings 6 and 7 need to be read together because when David first becomes king, he's king of only two tribes in the south and the northern ten tribes uh, remain uh, under um, independent governance and his capital is in Hebron. Uh, but after seven years, he takes Jerusalem and becomes king of the entire 12 tribes and then reigns for 33 more years in Jerusalem. So in Second Kings chapters um, uh, 6 and 7, what you find is the confluence of several themes. You have now the rise of Jerusalem as the capital city, and that sets an entire trajectory that finally ends in the New Jerusalem. This is the city of the great king, the Davidic dynasty. It's the city now also of what will become the temple. The tabernacle is moved into Jerusalem, and it is never moved out. Instead of being in Shiloh or some other place, moved around a bit within the tribes, uh, now Jerusalem, uh, what will be the temple, and the Davidic kingship are all in one place. That sets trajectories that run right through the rest of the Old Testament and find various forms of fulfillment in Jesus. So chapter 6 of 2 Samuel is the movement of the tabernacle to Jerusalem. Chapter 7 is the establishment of the Jerusalem uh, Davidic kingship, uh, a moving thing. Uh, and and um, the promise the groundwork for collecting the materials and the money needed to build the Jerusalem temple, which is undertaken eventually by Solomon in the next generation. So uh, some of these materials are celebrated in Psalms and in other ways too. Psalm 2 is a reflection of the establishment of the Davidic dynasty, looking forward to uh, a, a faithful, um, powerful uh, Davidic king. So, uh, we can track out more of those um, uh, bits and pieces, how the Davidic kingship develops in, in other podcasts. But, but right now, we, we need to focus on the storyline itself. So Solomon then follows David, and when he dies, um, his son Rehoboam uh, wants to act powerful, but succeeds only in dividing the kingdom between the northern tribes, Israel, and the southern tribes, 
um, based in Jerusalem. So Rehoboam now is king uh, in Jerusalem, but of only two tribes, that's all. And, and, uh, and the northern tribes develop their own um, king dominion. First of all, under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he picks up the, tab, uh, the tag, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who taught Israel to sin. And in order to prevent these people from going regularly to the temple in Jerusalem and thus maybe having a divided political allegiance, he establishes two temples, one way up north in Dan and one in the area that is eventually called Samaria, uh, just north of Jerusalem, but in the ten tribes. And and so there is idolatry and and more and more... um, uh, uh, multiplication of gods as as the the, the people uh, maintain some kind of loose allegiance to uh, Yahweh to God even while multiplying gods on on every side and um, in the north the accounts that are told in one and two kings uh, and in one and two chronicles and so on are are really pathetic. Um, each dynasty lasts only one, two, three generations and then bumped off by somebody and there's a murderous rage and all their kids are killed because there's a fear that somebody from the old dynasty will take over again and so forth. And eventually, under the press of horrible idolatry, um, God sends in the Assyrian army and the Assyrians uh, capture the leadership and transport it off to the ends of the earth to Assyria in the far north about 721 BC. Um, Jerusalem, though it's attacked, is spared. And eventually, by the time Jerusalem's sins have been multiplied and multiplied, um, then uh, uh, by that time the regional superpower is no longer Assyria, it's Babylon, which is taken over from Assyria. So Jerusalem is sacked in 586 BC, and the temple is destroyed. Um, and under Nebuchadnezzar, their leaders are transported in three successive waves, uh, in, in culminating in 586 BC. Now it's within that framework that it is helpful to read the opening lines of the prophets, um, so that you start reading Isaiah, for example, and the opening verses tell you that what takes place in Isaiah's uh, prophetic ministry is under the reins of so and so and so and so and so and so. And Isaiah himself lives uh, during the time of the Assyrian power, but prophetically he looks forward to what's going to take place under the Babylonian reign as well, so that his vision covers something like 150 years of what will take place. And he foresees uh, uh, not only the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, but he foresees also uh, ev- eventually uh, not only the exile, but the return from the exile when, when God will bring salvation to his people. And in the far, far, far distance, like, like the distant mountains peeping over the near mountains, he foresees ultimately a new heaven and a new earth that's going to change the rules of the game entirely. So, uh, in prophetic words, then, now Isaiah envisages a, a, a time when a Davidic son is born. Um, a, a son is born, a child is, is born. Uh, he, he will reign on the throne of his father David. Of the, of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. There's a promise of the Davidic dynasty. Yet, at the same time, um, uh, he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, we need to track out that Davidic dynasty theme in the Old Testament. Uh, 
Meanwhile, then the people of God go into exile, and and around the years before um, the Jerusalem people are carted off to the Babylonian Empire, uh, Jeremiah is preaching in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel is preaching in Babylon, carted off by an earlier wave. And they're both saying the same thing. They're both saying the people must not rebel against Babylon. If they do, they're going to be destroyed. But they rebel against God, and they are destroyed. And uh, and and the, the huge messages of Jeremiah and of Ezekiel are, are that the people are so wicked that destruction and exile are inevitable, and the only hope at the end of the period of exile is that God himself brings them back and provides a redeemer for them. So when the people start returning... Uh, then you have um, the ministry of the so-called post-exilic prophets, uh, people like Haggai, who uh, preaches to tell the people who are returning that um, they really need to build the temple right away. That's the center of the meeting place between God and human beings that God himself has ordained. And and so um, the, the, a, a small temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. And... Um, uh, here is when you find also the ministry of Ezra, and then a little later the ministry of Nehemiah, who is brought back by God himself uh, to build the wall around the city. The temple is built before Jerusalem is rebuilt. Hardly anybody lives there. They're, they're poor, dirt poor, living in farms around the area. Uh, but the temple is there and is operating in a low-key, unfaithful, miserable sort of way until Nehemiah, uh, strengthened by God, uh, rebuilds the city wall despite a lot of opposition and invests in a repopulation program to get people inside and build up the city again. Um, and, and that's when you find the final storyline of the Old Testament under the ministry of Nehemiah. So you have a number of post-exilic prophets writing and preaching at that time, that is, prophets preaching to the people of God after, post, the exile. So you have the pre-exilic prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and the post-exilic prophets, right at the turn of the period, is Daniel himself. And, um, and, and then post-exile, people like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And um, and then what happens in the period between the Testaments is um, uh, hundreds of years when the people are really under one regional superpower or another. After the Assyrians, as we've said, come the Babylonians. After the Babylonians uh, come the, 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 the Persians. And it's under the Persian Empire that uh, the Jews are allowed back into the Promised Land. There was a reversal of imperial policy, and a lot of people who had been transported are allowed back into their own lands, including the Moabites, for example. It wasn't just the Jews. And God faithfully thus brings his people back uh, to the land. But the, the Persians uh, are eventually taken over by the Greeks. And then the Greek Empire dies when Alexander the Great uh, dies um, in the last third of the of, of the fourth century BC, and his land is is broken up into four regions led by four former generals. None of this is found as history in the Old Testament, but some of it is predicted by the visions of Daniel. And eventually, Israel finds itself squashed between a general in the south in the land of Egypt and a general to the north in the land of Syria, and they're caught in no man's land in endless struggles. 
and eventually the a wicked general in the north in the second century BC, a man called Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, he decides to impose imperial paganism on Jerusalem. He makes um, sacrifice in the temple uh, to Yahweh, to God, a capital crime. Owning any part of Torah is a capital crime. Observing the Sabbath is a capital crime. And he intends by terror to impose paganism on the people. And what happens is he kicks off a bloody civil war um, that uh, that is uh, characterized by endless guerrilla struggles. Uh, people can read about that for themselves in the writings of Josephus, a first century A.D. historian. And um, the bloodiest part of that takes place 167 to 164 B.C. And eventually the Jews become strong enough that there's a set piece of battle by the Orontes River, and the Assyrians are are beaten, the Assyrians rather, not the Assyrians, the Syrians, under Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, are beaten. And for the first time in half a millennium, the Jews have a right to... Uh, re-establish the Davidic kingship. But is that what they do? Nope. Rather, the guerrilla leaders themselves take over. And and so, when they have a right to re-establish the Davidic kingship, they don't do so. And a century later, in 63 BC, the Romans take over. And so the people are under the oppression of Rome now, the Roman Empire. And that's the way it is uh, with a regional local puppet called Herod. Uh, who is operating under the aegis of the Roman Empire when Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea in fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah. So Jesus is born then under Roman imperial rule and uh, uh, lives, serves, dies, rises again. And uh, the exact date of his resurrection, some think it's about AD 30, some about AD 33, uh, but certainly in that period. And... um, and then the church explodes in um, uh, numbers, first of all, in Jewish circles, then in Gentile circles, until you have the ministry of Paul and others with the church expanding throughout the Roman world. And much of the book of Acts traces the spreading of the gospel through the ministries of Peter and Paul and a few others until the gospel actually is well established in Rome itself. And and thus, although not politically threatening the Roman Empire at this stage, uh, nevertheless uh, demonstrating that, as Jesus puts it at the end of Matthew, all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth in the wake of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The rest of the New Testament fills out the interactions between New Testament writers and local or regional groups of Christians in churches or regions to address theological and pastoral issues until you get to the last book of the New Testament, the Apocalypse. Uh, Here, Christians have divided over the years about how to interpret that book. Um, It's it's worth sometimes spending time to outline uh, how Christians have understood the future Um, At different periods of the church's history, um, they have tended to one position or another. In the first half of the uh, 20th century, a vast number of Christians in America call themselves pre-millennial, pre-tribulationists. But one must remember that in the uh, period of the Puritans, for example, the overwhelming majority were post-millennialists and uh, a few pre-millennialists. There were no all-millennialists. At the moment, all millennialism is on the rise. If you don't know what those terms are, don't worry about it. Because my point in this survey is that um, all of these groups, without exception, uh, do understand that the ultimate hope of the church 
is not some sort of millennial splendor. The ultimate hope of the church is the new heaven and the new earth, resurrection existence in a remade, reconstituted universe that includes resurrection existence where there are, there's no more death, there's no more uh, sorrow, there are no more tears or pain or suffering. The old order, Revelation 21, is passed away. It can be seen as a new Jerusalem. It can be seen as uh, a bride finally consummated in union with Christ. It can be seen as a new heaven and a new earth, uh, but spectacular, holy resurrection existence with the glory of glories being that they shall see God um, face to face uh, in a way that even the angels of heaven can't see God. The angels cover their faces with their wings and cry, holy, holy, holy. But according to Revelation 22, uh, God's redeemed people actually gaze on God. And in vast, uh, picturesque descriptions of what this existence will look like, um, we are treated to visions of work and of song and of praise, and of righteous living, and God-centeredness, and, and uh, 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 glory to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb uh, forever and ever. Oh my, that is an incredibly rich history of the Bible storyline. Thank you, Dr. Carson. Uh, so many themes have, have been mentioned here in this episode, and we'll begin to pick them up now, one by one, and next time uh, we'll focus on the doctrine of creation, and uh, that'll be in a few weeks. We'll, we'll give you a call again. Thank you, Dr. Carson. Okay, blessings. Bye now. That was Dr. Don Carson, the co-founder and president of the Gospel Coalition. He is the editor of the new NIV Zondervan Study Bible. And uh, next time, Dr. Carson will give us a biblical theology of creation as it runs throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This has been a special episode in the Ask Pastor John podcast, a longer weekend episode, and it's been made possible by our partnership with the Gospel Coalition. We appreciate our friends over there. We return on Monday with John Piper to look at how Christians should tolerate the religious beliefs of non-Christians. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Have a wonderful weekend.